everyone and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast and today I'm joined by the custodian of the Alistair Gray Archive, Sorsha Dallas. Hello Sorsha. Hi Ali, nice to see you. And we have so much to talk about. <laughs> so, but let's start with Grey Day, which is coming up on the 25th of February. What can you tell us about that? Well, um, the 25th of February is the 40th anniversary of Alistair's seminal work, his probably most well-known work of fiction, Lanark. And so um, Canongate, we're talking about ways in which we, they could commemorate it and came up with this idea of Grey Day. So um, there's various things happening on the lead up and on, on the day itself. Um, in terms of publications, Lanark, uh, the new edition, the new 40th edition of Lanark is, is, is coming out and that's going to be launched on the day itself. And it's a beautiful new edition, which has got the kind of colour um, cover, which Alistair made back in sort of 2014. He updated the black and white um, original um, plates from the original 81 book and added colour with Glasgow Print Studio. So that's got a beautiful new colour and as well as I'm re-releasing some new titles. And then there's also an event that I've been working on with Canongate and Oyriki, which is a kind of broadcast, which will be happening, a Grey Day broadcast at 7.30pm. So there'll be um, various different speakers, some, um, some you'll be familiar with from your, your podcast. Um, so friends, um, family, admirers from a kind of wide range of artists, writers, um, people who, I guess, Lanark has affected them and is important to them. So they'll be reading different extracts. Some will be sharing memories of Lanark and its impact too. And that'll be ha happening at 7.30 p.m. on the day with a sort of book launch tied in with that. And you can sign up to that event, it's free. And you can sign up via the Eventbrite page, which is on the Grey Day website, which is www.greyday.info. Um, so there's a few things that I've been doing at the archive as well. In the lead up to Grey Day, I've been asking um, again, people who um, know Alistair's work or um, who admire it, so friends, family, experts, fans, to record themselves um, reading their favourite clip from Lanark that I've been kind of sharing on the lead up to the day itself too. And then there's a few things that are happening for the archive on the day itself as well. Um, you have been very kindly working with me on uh, this new podcast that mm -hmm. is going to be um, released uh, called Grey Matters. So there'll be two programmes that will be um, released on Grey Day for that, the first two programmes. Uh, the first iteration of the archive website will be um, up and live as well, and that will list some other things that will be happening on, in the months ahead. Um, there's a couple of interviews that I've been doing, which one with Sunny uh, G Radio with Carla Woodburn that I was uh, did a programme about the neglect, Alistair Gray, the neglected poet with um, Alan Reick and Rog Glass. So that's going to be going out as well. Um, there's a few other things that I've been working on at the archive, um, one also being an education resource, a downloadable activity linked to, to Grey Day and to Lanark as well. So there'll be a range of different ways that people can um, engage with Grey Day, but also what we're really encouraging is for people to celebrate and share memories of Alistair's themselves and to link it back. So to use the hashtag Grey Day or to link the archive um, and canagate within that so that we can really sort of um, flood social media with um, lots of Alistair related um, stories and images and really just celebrate not just Lanark but his wider his wider practice really. I mean there's a, that's so much going on it's incredible and yeah. it, it you know you talked about the amount of people that have um, are being involved and are going to share things and I think it just, we spoke about it before we started recording it just shows the kind of warm 
and what Alistair and his work meant to so many people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important to kind of harness, uh, you know, in terms of the archive moving forward and to set that um, you know, democratic, generous, openness in terms of um, sharing his work in that way from the get-go really because as you said um, you know his work did touch many different people in different ways and also because of the multifaceted practice that he had you know it was not just um, fictions or essays or plays it was paintings murals the expansive nature of his practice that means that many different people pick up or respond to different elements within that so it's important to harness that and also you know Alistair he was generous with his time too you could uh, find him quite regularly and the ubiquitous chip or Oramore and people would often bump into him and have a chat and he would always you know take time and enjoy those conversations he was uh, legendary for backing up a book signing queue with writing dedications or drawing portraits to people and um, you know and that taking time for people and the valuing uh, of of each individual I think is really important and something that um, I'm really keen to preserve in terms of the archive moving forward that it isn't it is felt like it is a space that everyone feels that they can be part of and can access because you know that's ultimately what Alistair believed in and um, the equi equitable nature of, of culture and it's accessibility of that and it's really important from the start to to have that um, as an ethos moving forward. I think uh, the word generosity is absolutely correct the way that um, he would uh, take time you know to talk to people I mean and also I worked briefly uh, as one of his secretaries mm -hmm. and often there would be people saying oh could you do this or could you do that and often his first reaction was well, actually, have you thought about this person or have you thought about that person? And he was always kind of thinking about how he could perhaps support um, a, other people, contemporaries and others as well. Absolutely. He never pushed forward singularly, did he? He always brought others with him. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, obviously there's a legacy from Alistair in terms of his output, his creative output, but there's a legacy in terms of who he was and how he... Um, how he was as a, as a practitioner and as a person. And I think that ger generosity and that interesting community and valuing every individual within that, not one person over the other, you know, that very much kind of democratic idea of things is really a kind of key, um, a key part of it too. And, you know, you can see that, can't you, in, in, in his books, how he, um, how he name checks or supports other people's, I'm thinking about the life and pictures and how he used chapters within that to talk about Contempt, you know, his, his peer group of artists and how he used that as a showcase to sort of promote and make people more familiar with their, their work. But he, and you know, I think he does that in his books too, doesn't he? In terms of like um, being very honest about borrowing from different sources and you know, no artist, no person works in a vacuum. We're all, there's all these layers that went before and that are coming after and to acknowledge that and make, um, make use of that rich resource and make it your own and also allow other people to in interpret that in, in their own way too. It's uh, one of the, the first, in fact, the first job I worked on for him was A Life in Pictures. And the mm -hmm. reason for that was when it came back, it had some blank pages at the end. And yeah. he's like, I can't have blank pages. So he did his post postscript, just yeah. to fill <laughs> these pages. I yeah. thought, yeah, that's, yeah, that dedication to uh, yeah. what he's doing. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I was that's where one of the first things I was 
working on with Alistair too is getting the images in place for a life in pictures and you know obviously he had catalogued things in very various different ways some very old slides some black and white photos you know we went through that process of trying to trace through works that he definitely wanted included that we didn't have good images for and I remember through that process you know, we put calls out in newspapers. We did various things to try and identify where these works were. We, we didn't find any of them, but it just flagged up a whole load of other works that we weren't aware of. And, you know, even now, you know, that's what's been brilliant with the archive, people sharing stories and images or, you know, drawings that they met, you know, old family friends, drawings that he did for them or people that he maybe met once or twice at a book signing. And, you know, how he's sort of filtered, his work has filtered into and touched so many people. Uh, I mean, what a, what a legacy and what a huge amount. And also within that legacy, um, the kind of connections that you can start to, to make across space and form. It's such a rich, rich, deep resource um, and one that will take decades to fully, I think, unpick and unravel. Yeah, you've got a big job ahead of you. Yeah, well, not just me. There's lots of other people who... Are, which is great too, because obviously there's lots of other people interested in, in sharing and collaborating on that too. So again, that community is important. I think it's really interesting to have a day looking at Lanark in particular, because it's um, when it came out, it's seen as you know experimental and, and you know kind of brand new. But actually, in hindsight, it's almost um, a statement about how his art and his life are intertwined. They are inseparable. And so yeah. you have this biographical strand, you have this fantastic strand, and and yet they are uh, you can't really take them apart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes me think of um, that first podcast that I've done with uh, Professor Alan Reek, who's a professor of Scottish literature at Glasgow Uni. I know you, you know him too, Ali. And he talks about he was an attendee at the original 1981 launch, and he was doing his PhD at that time, and he. He talks about this sort of sensing that there was something changing, the sort of changing of the guard or this sort of movement into something new and almost how he used the word unpalatable. Uh, Lanark wasn't in a way for many people. It took it took a while for it to be digestible, which, you know, for him to share that memory 40 years ago to, as you're saying, fast forward 40 years later and how it's obviously seen as a sort of masterwork of, of Scottish fiction. I thought it was really interesting to remember that often those things are, there's a resistance to, to things that are new, but yeah, absolutely. That's something, the personal and the universal, I think just for me has always kind of come through in Alistair's work. I did the, curated the show back at Kelvin Grove um, in 2014, 2015 for the Alistair Grey season and the title was from the personal to, you know, to the universal and that idea of using something familiar so Glasgow or friends, family, your immediate surroundings, but to use that to talk about more universal themes or to connect universally, I think is really powerful. And, you know, those messages, you know, if I'm thinking about some of the archives work in terms of education, I think they're really important messages to talk. There's a really good access point away in for, for children in Alistair's work, that idea of, first of all, the power of books and, you know, libraries and that access that you can be, you know, current restrictions, we're sort of restricted to our bedrooms or to our houses, but you can still travel, you can still um, learn about other people and other places and other viewpoints from your bedroom. Um, and that being really important, um, sort of power of that. Um, and also, you know, to the authentic voice, which, you know, I think for, you know, a lot of kids maybe how they're encountering literature, sort of set texts can maybe feel quite exclusionary at, at times that they can't find their own 
representation within that. So to use an authentic voice, their own real life experience and what around them is really valid and important. So yeah, there, there's a lot. I think that's a great point actually at the moment that escape into literature or, or other areas of arts is, is almost crucial. Yeah. You know, when you're, you're when you're physically constrained, you know, you can still have escape yeah. in other ways. Yeah. And also and, that idea of, um, sorry, of, of books, yeah. you know, I think obviously Alistair's interest, have you kind of uh, books, um, so text and image always were intertwined when he was reading and often were to, you know, I guess, um, sort of wider society sometimes likes to categorize you, are you an artist, are you, like, what is your, what is it, what is your practice, how do you define it? And he, you know, he almost, um, he didn't want to be limited it was all about they can all fit together and that idea that yeah you can illustrate and design your own books and do other things you don't need to be restricted um and to to, to play around across those forms is really um powerful too i think that's interesting because i think today that's much more acceptable and almost um expected that you know you're that people will be a filmmaker but they might be a dj or they might be you know there's all these different things um about I think a lot of people say, used to say, well, is he, a, is he a writer or is he a painter or is he, you know, a muralist or whatever? That never bothered him. He just said, well, what am I doing today? What will yeah. I go do today? Yeah, no, it's right. I think you're, you're right. Things are different in terms of maybe, you know, practice is more fluid, isn't it, in terms of how you can um, connect and, and work across multiple forms. But at the time, yeah, that really, I think, um, bothered a lot of people. It's like, <laughs> Art, you know, you have to be one or the other. You can't, um, and I guess for a lot of people, the reality of how they encountered his work was through his books because he got yeah. you know, publishers. He got that's how he could then make his work public in a way. But then for them to realise, which obviously Life and Pictures did for many people, that he had a kind of seventy-year uh, visual art practice behind behind him, and yeah. you know, he always talks about the, the idea of he was an artist who fell into writing. And it was about opportunity to, I guess, around that, that these things, you know, happened. There was um, finance or support behind it. So he then focused on those things. But yeah, it's, uh, I guess, fascinating even now how much you think, I mean, I don't think you can ever fully know or understand the extent of Alistair Gray and his work, but the idea of constantly learning new things is really, really exciting. And am I right in saying that he um, thought Lanark was going to be his only book? That was, you know, taking him so long to, to do and, and to get published. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, can't, I I'm probably not the best person to talk uh, about that, but I mean, I know that he was writing other things before that, but obviously because of the 30 year sort of gestational periods, um, that was the kind of main focus. But I know he wrote other bits in the kind of lead up to that, but, um, and obviously there was, he had to have show real tenacity, I guess, and being, again, this, which he always had, that, and, you know, from working with him, Ali, that very clear focus on how he wanted things yeah, to be. So. And that could sometimes change, right, as well. But he was, he had this very clear vision. And, you know, I guess there's, there was, there's, it's been kind of uh, spoken about, hasn't it, over the years, that how various publishers wanted the book separated or tried to get him to change the format, but he was dogged in how he wanted it um, to be. So, um, yeah, and also, I mean, I was trying to get my head around that, like, how did that feel then after 30 years of working on something to then have that finished? And, you know, almost when you get to 30 years, is it ever finished then? Or, you know, if you've taken three decades, um, and of course, there's been new 
editions of it and he's altered and changed it and added things and I think that idea of the cycles of Alistair's work like things always remaining unfinished for me really comes back to um, his training and mural making that idea of the te temporary nature of things or things being able to add to be added and painted on top of and not being precious about changing and moving or recycling and, and, and picking things up I think that's really born out of his mural making tradition for me I feel so um that kind of uh, exactitude in, in his work, I think, is uh, I, I watched the uh, podcast you've done with um, Maura Rowley, uh, his sister, uh, which is fantastic. People must uh, listen to it. It's just fantastic. But there's this bit where she talks about how he found letter writing painful because he had to construct this. And that made me smile because often he would the way he would work would be he would dictate replies to emails. And it was like he was, you know, every word counted in these emails replies. It was never just, you know, dear such and such, thank you for your email. I'll get back to you later. Yeah. <laughs> Love, Alistair. It was one, you know, yeah. and over the most seemingly uh, innocuous things, you know, these weren't big deals, but every one he had, he took that care with. And it's that idea, isn't it? It's like striving for purity and form, I think that, and you could tell that when you were having conversations with him, that he was thinking something, but as he was saying it or, or thinking to verbalize it, his mind was thinking about how can I simplify that or make it more exact and precise. I mean, I love that old um, video footage from, uh, I think Kevin Cameron used it in Life in Progress where Alistair's interviewed just around the time of Lanark coming out. Um, and they say, you know, how would you describe Lanark? And he's, he says, well, I would describe it as a Scottish petty bourgeois uh, model of the universe. And they say, and that's it. He said, oh, yes, I've rehearsed it, you know. And there was that idea of, um, yeah, this trying to distill things down to the purity and form, which, um, you know, you can see that not just in his writing, but in his, in his artwork as well. You know, he never cross-hatched things. It was one very bold, distinct line, and he would you know, go back over it to make it better and strengthen it. And that's something I think you can really, um, is a good way of describing everything that he makes. Um, but yes, I, I remember those, I remember having a conversation with him on the phone while he was replying to one of my emails, which he was dictating to his secretary. And it was like this three-way conversation where I said, I'm on the phone, you could just reply to me now. Nope, I need to do it properly. Um, and I loved that. I loved how it was a, like a proper letter. It was you know, yours sincerely, it was um, constructed beautifully. And of course, then you'd, uh, you know, as I've spoken to you about um, letter writing was such an important part then of his work and from going through items in his flat before we kind of decanted everything, um, the correspondence and his filing cabinets is, is incredible. And, you know, correspondence with people you'd expect him to maybe be corresponding with like Agnes Owen or James Kelman, but actually the most poignant and beautiful and largest folder is the one with his sister, Maura Rowley. And that was, you know, Maura's a, a lovely lady to talk to, it's such a pleasure. And for him to have kept all of that, but also for her to obviously have kept all his letters um, and drawings and other things too is, um, you know, really, really beautiful that the honesty in which she talks about their relationship, you know, it was a bit fraught at the beginning, but when they were able to be separate and individual people, sort of teenage years onwards, then there's this kind of coming back together and this valuing of each other and a really enduring, relationship within you know that they had it's really moving to hear her speak it was a lovely interview. it really is and the reassessment of not just their relationship but the time we talk about you know kind of social what was acceptable and perhaps isn't acceptable you know uh, these days in terms of parenting yeah. things like that yeah. 
Yeah. And she also talks about the launch um, of Lanark and that kind of support that was there. You know, I think she said that at one point, well, we always tried to go to all of his you yeah. know, things, um, which was really, so, because from reading Lanark or just knowing his work, that's what these podcasts, the Grey Matters podcasts, I think are going to bring. It's, it's other aspects to it, the kind of things that happened around them that allowed him to kind of do the work that he did. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, obviously he was very singular and, you know, but, and obviously we're talking about him from a creative point of view, but obviously there's, you know, a fallout around that too, sometimes for other people who are directly involved in his life. So, you know, he, um, you know, I could, you know, I could see that obviously from working with him, he, he wasn't tied up with the every day of paying bills and making sure he had enough money for rent and all these things, you know, he was completely absorbed in his yeah. work. So, you know, fallout for partners and family around that is trying to manage or give him the space to, to be that person. But yeah, Moran, his family, you know, always really supportive, like attending exhibition launches and book signings and yeah, just that warmth. Um, around his family is, yeah. So you said that you started kind of working with them uh, around about the time of A Life in Pictures. How did that come about? Well, it was a bit before that. A Life in Pictures, I guess, came out, was that 2012? I was thinking, no, yeah. 20, yeah. So around 2007, I had set up a commercial gallery around 2003. So I had gone to art school, drawing and painting, you know, did the thing that every art student did, uh, read Lanark while I was walking in the, you know, the footsteps of, yeah. Thaw and Alistair. Um, so I was in drawing and painting. I was in one of these beautiful studios in my fourth year um, in the Macintosh building. Um, and yeah, having that was such a sort of seminal text and really cited by so many artists, not just about how it kind of, you know, reimagined Glasgow, but I guess what we've been talking about, this idea of fostering a community north of the border and not feeling this pull to London, how you could stay in Glasgow and you could make things happen. So, you know, I was kind of um, graduating at the time where places like Transmission Gallery, Gallery was really important, like an artist-run space, and there was a lot of cross-pollination that happened, you know, like Liz Lockhead, Alistair Gray, James Kelman, people like all participated in and around that scene. So, you know, really um, art and, and, you know, art in its widest sense, it was all kind of cross-fertilizing and mixing. So I set up an artist-run space, and then from that I set up a commercial gallery, which was really about kind of trying to champion a kind of younger generation of artists that were coming out of the city at the time and a lot of them including me obviously cited Alistair as a real um, inspiration and so around 2007 I thought I'm just going to write him and ask him if he would like to do something I feel you know I could help him I could maybe recontextualize his work his visual work isn't so well known I'd love to do something with it and what's the worst that can happen? We do one show or he says no, but I, I need to try. So I remember writing him a letter and then getting a lovely letter back and he saying and him, him saying, you know, please come up at such and such a time. It was one evening and walking up the hill to his flat. Um, and then I don't know if you remember your first time going into his flat, but the sort of this sort of trepidation and fear of about to meet Alistair Gray. And then of course he opens the door and he's so generous and down to earth but going into that flat and that space I still remember it the absolute you know my breath almost being taken away from walking into that space and just overwhelmed by the books the objects the paintings all around it and um, I mean it took a lot to kind of digest and take in and so we had the conversation and we were talking about 
you know, artists. And, and I was building up to saying, you know, I'd really like to do a show with you and represent you. And I think he could probably sense that because he then interjected and said, so I want you to be my dealer. And I was like, absolutely, I'd love to do that. So we started then to work on the first show we did together was in 2008 for Glasgow International Festival of Visual Art. And it was really great because it was showing works from the 70s, um, I guess, taking them, borrowing them back from different people and um, reframing them and then obviously showing them, like, trying to recontextualize them. And they, they really stood up as a drawing show, even though the works were almost 35, 40 years old, it really stood up as a, as a drawing show, but it was a body of work that he'd made in the 70s, and um, the show was called Now and Then, and it was from a film, it was for a film series that he was working on with Malcolm Hosick, where he was meant to be doing the sort of still images, so there was a film, and then when it cut to these still scenes, Alistair's paintings were meant to appear, and there was poems that Liz Lockhead had written to kind of be read on top of them, and the project didn't happen because Alistair took so long, it didn't, it started off as a few sort of small drawings, and then it became all these ambitious suite of work so that was wonderful to try and bring that together yeah. in some way and obviously to have Liz's poems that we reproduced we made a little bit from it um, too so really then you know uh, that kind of that was the first time that we worked together and you know there's many projects that we worked on over the over the years after that um, and obviously one of the things that I really kind of helped him with was trying to then get the visual archive in order um, a bit more for a life in pictures. So it felt kind of timely. That was something that I was thinking about doing, but having then the focus of trying to catalogue it more fully for a life in pictures was um, really good and really helpful to do too. Um, yeah. uh, talking about the first time you go into that flat, I do remember it well because he, he answered the door in a vest with the porridge in his hands and one sock <laughs> on and one sock off. <laughs> And I was a bit like, oh, hello, can I come in? And away sit down. And he never did that any other time. And I often think, was that a test? Was that a test to see whether I would go, no, thank you, I'm not doing it. Uh, but yeah, I will never forget that. And that's the thing that everyone will have, I think, one of the reasons why and what you're doing is so interesting because everyone will have a similar type of story or something that has stuck with them from meeting Alistair. Yeah, and it's important to build that up, this kind of, you know, Obviously, the podcast is one way, some of the readings I'm doing, but, you know, that this idea of the wider oral history around him, that's so important to harness. And also, you know, the archive is obviously, you can see behind me, I've reinstated in part his sort of desk area and, and working studio. So, you know, I, I appreciate that lots of people never went into his flat. I know lots of people used to love peering into his flat because he was ground floor and looking in. And there's some great stories that people have shared about seeing him, uh, you know, working in, in different states uh, of, of undress in other, in other ways. So I think that idea of, you know, people are so, you know, and I, I remember doing that too, walking around the West End and I would glimpse a, a painting in someone's flat and think, I think that's an Alistair Gray. You know, it's so, him, his life, his work, it's so intertwined with the West End in particular, right, and Byers Road in that area. So to then have a space here, which gives people a little bit of an insight into what that space was like, you know, the archive, you know, it's got that domestic feel to it. It does feel a very Alistair space. So I think that's, and obviously we've recorded and documented his, his flat before it was packed up too. So people can um, get a sense of the working space in, in which he lived and worked. Let's talk a little bit about the archive. Um, a, was it a case of going in and seeing what was, was left uh, in, in the flat and just um, a, working through it? 
Um, a little bit. I mean, obviously, um, the situation that we were in when Alistair died was that he you know, he didn't own his flat, so we didn't have an extended period in which to work through things and, and make plans. It all happened very quickly. We had a three-month window in which to really get out, so that obviously prompted decisions to have to be made quite quickly. Um, so there was a couple of um, institutions and organisations that you know, I've worked with and Alistair had donated and sold work to over the years that helped support that process. Um, so the Glasgow School of Art were wonderful, as were the Scottish National Galleries of Modern Art. They, one of our archivists, Kirsty Mehan, came over and helped me with the visual recording of, of the visual side of things. Um, and then also the National Library Service have been wonderful in their support too. So yeah, I mean, I guess thinking about what works are, are within collections, what makes sense in terms of where should some of those works go and be housed longer term. But equally, you know, I think for Alistair and his work, it's very important to have an access point that is somewhere in the city, which is open, that people can can pop into. It's not, you know, it, it's an accessible and from the um, from the get-go really having a place um, so it, it can be sort of agile, it can be sort of used as a, a base for it. So um, I guess if you're talking about what's in it in the archive, I've got pretty much all the visual work that was in Alistair's flat. So paintings, prints, sketches, his plan chest, which is full of studies, as well as some correspondence too. I have also got a section of his um, private library. Some of the works have been annotated too. He, that's a revelation for me, how interested he was in marginalia and his comments on so how he would write on books and how he would write on books. Sometimes he would use them because he obviously had run out of paper and they would be like sketchbooks we draw on top of things. But then sometimes he was actively engaging with the text and trying to improve it or comment on it. So that's quite interesting too. And then there's personal items from his flat, you know, so the way I've reinstated um, his desk area does feel like you remember it from his flat. He had the big um, Persian rug and the old the old green chair, which so many secretaries say that green chair, you know, the the sore back that you know the need for and yoga. <laughs> so that green chair, I feel like we need to do a secretary support group where you all come round and that can be a podcast. <laughs> That's definitely an episode, right? The Green Share podcast, where we have to get all the secretaries together to talk about, which is, I think, yeah, that process of working for Alistair too, and the patience and, you know, letting him just formulate these things. But um, so the Green Share is here in, in his desk and various things that he um, had and used to, to work on. And people can visit, people can... Well, when it's safe to do so, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, I, yeah. For a minute there, I forgot we had a <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, you know, I've, you know, I've had it all photographed and filmed and we're hoping to have some of that up for Grady uh, next week. But, you know, that will really be the next thing to have it open for bookable visits um, is really, you know, important, a key part of what I want to do here. But once it's safe to do so, so hopefully come spring, people can start to, to book in for visits too. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. And was there anything particularly surprising that you found as you were uh, going through things? Yeah, I mean, probably the marginalia thing for me was really interesting to see that and how he thought about books. And again, this idea of not feeling precious about things to write and, you know, edit or work on top of them. There was also some older works from a kind of art school, just post art school, which were really beautiful sketches, painted sort of sketches, but um, quite abstract 
uh, kind of reminded me of sort of Scottish colourists in a way, but also kind of Kandinsky-esque as well. Really interesting because obviously Alistair has got abstract forms within his paintings, but I guess overall there's some sort of figuration or landscape that they kind of come back to. But if you've seen some of the illustrations in his book, some of the more abstract doodles that he does, um, it, it makes me think of those. So there's, a, I guess, a connection, a seed that I can see, you know, the more familiar outcomes of them now, but where that seed maybe germinated and started from all those sort of decades ago. Um, yeah, and then obviously letters, there's been some uh, lovely letters to kind of look through and, and read to, and just the, the quality of the work really, you know, that's one thing, even looking through the plan chest and you pull out and there's sketches and studies, but the quality of the line and the work and the intention, um, it was really powerful. And do you think he was aware, it seemed to me he was aware that he was going to leave a legacy, he was going to leave things for people to um, discover and ruminate over in the future. Yeah, I mean, when I started working with Alistair, he was in his 70s. So I think from the start, I we had those conversations about legacy and um, what to do about that. And that was something that I was really important to, uh, really, in, you know, really keen to get down on paper and to have conversations with him about because, you know, posthumously different people can interpret what can happen to someone's life and work, but for someone to be clear about that is really important. So we had, uh, while I was running the gallery, we had set up a bit like an archive, a charity, the Ulster Gray Foundation, and we tried various ways to get funding and support to kind of start to, to map that out and start to record some of the things that I guess I'm doing now, but, you know, always felt that that was, um, it was, it, you know, it's difficult because you're talking about a legacy and often those things become more interesting to people and valuable once that person's not there. Um, so we had mapped out in many, many ways what he wanted to do. And obviously all the works that I have here are bequeathed to Alistair's son, to Andrew, and he's been very generous in allowing the archive to use and understand the legacy of that work and the wider impact, you know, not on just media, visual arts and culture, but you know, the wider society, education, uh, there's so much we can sort of use to learn, to use to learn from, from, from the work that's left here. So yeah, the legacy, that's always been something that we've spoken about and been clear about. And, you know, I think for Alistair, like we were talking about, not just the work, but how he lived as a, as a person, this idea of um, access. So for this, the archive to be accessible and to be, be a space that anyone can come in and visit. And also for me, from, from the start with the archive, it's having, you know, these different ways that it can connect. So if, you know, people want to, you know, obviously I'm working with Roger Glass and um, other people on the academic symposium, online symposium that's happening in April. And also there's a conference in 2022. So kind of the high, you know, academic interpretation, but equally bookable visits and um, education. So I kind of want to do quite a lot of work with primary and secondary schools and trying to engage new audiences too. So how can we take maybe a theme or a section from his work and connect it and use it as a starting point to create resources for other um, contexts too. So yeah, I mean, as you know, Ali, it's such a rich body of work and there's so, so in a way, maybe starting with Lanark and Grady is a good way to start because in so many ways that encapsulates a lot about his work and, and pra wider practice. Um, so yeah, the, I, I'm hoping too that this will be the first of many great days that will just become an annual event and each year we can start to pick out and tease out a different section and learn more about it. And 
of course, will be ongoing work that the archive and other people will be doing around that in the interim between these grey days, but what a nice way to kind of shine a light on different sections and celebrate it in, in the widest possible sense. I think that's right. I can't wait for the day itself, but also for what comes after it too. Mm -hmm. So, Sasha, thank you so much for taking time to have a chat today. Oh, thank you, Ali. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>